you know, there's nothing wrong with always aspiring to be to be better. But the backlash of that is you really have to go easy on yourself when you make a mistake. I was often a kid that was really critical of myself and would lambast myself again and again and again for having made a mistake rather than just like getting over it and solving the problem. Like, okay, what next? There's a resilience that I think each of us has to kind of develop over time in how comfortable we are in our, in our skin. guest today is Ian Kraybacher. He is a designer on the XD team at Netflix, working on the same application I work on, tools for animation artists. He's also an experienced video editor and camera operator. And we talk all the time for work and regularly go into other topics. So I thought it'd be fun to have him on the show. got to get one of these new macbook pros yeah you know it's about time um this one's about three years old so so um they're pretty good huh? oh they're so there's i've never heard the fan come on i never have a problem with noise it's just they're great they're just fantastic cool i have all sorts of tech tattoos ready ready for them that's the one thing right you gotta change laptop you lose all your cool stuff in the past <laughs> that's right Maggie keeps on telling me I don't want a new computer because I've got like my stickers. I've got a Yoda sticker. I can get another one. <laughs> so I got to like, get a new computer and buy her a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Stickers. Yeah. Are they really called tech tattoos? I'm going to tell you right now. I had a bunch of stickers on this laptop and I got tired of them. So I was going to swap them out. And every single one on this current MacBook left an impression other than the one that is... I think formally called a tech tattoo that I got from Netflix. All of their stickers, of course, I had to use like Google and all sorts of chemicals to get it off their property. So I think it's safe to say that even the tech tattoo one left an outline, like a discoloration. So they're better applied on the skin, I think, or whatever sort of things that you can put on top of your laptop. Yeah. Assuming you need to keep it pristine. Yeah, you know, I've gotten to the point where I'm thinking of technology more and more as, and I hate to say this, quite frankly, because it's a different ethic, but technology in a lot of ways is disposable. Like I know that a laptop is going to have a lifetime of like three to five years. Phones in particular get swapped out quickly. So I'm less precious about technology, even though these things aren't cheap than I used to be. be like, yeah, you know, put stickers on it, decorate it, make it personal. You know, because at some point it's going to go away. What are you precious about? I guess in terms of like uh, other than family and things that should matter to you in your life, I suppose uh, my hockey gear is precious to me um, because I like to play. And then I have a board game collection that, um, you know, is another way of engaging with folks and stuff. And when folks come around, being able to have a, just like if you had music, here's music that you dear guest would enjoy here's a board game that you might like to play um so i guess those things in terms of my insurance policy i guess i would care about those being lost uh my hockey sticks and skates before my car you know (laughs) that sort of thing has the board game playing slowed down during a pandemic i suppose a little bit um although there are a lot of alternatives one of the things that i think a lot of people learned during the pandemic is there are a lot of alternatives for playing games online for people figuring out ways to get a camera set up to be able to play where people um essentially mirror their board states to one another and then make moves uh, periodically so have you done that i have done that there's a game that i was playing with my nephew who lives on the east coast and I set up a two camera or three camera setup because the game is quite big. And he had, uh, I think, one or two cameras too. And we, we played a game uh, one afternoon, um, sort of mirroring and matching each other's moves. It was, did it, it was pretty did fun. It work? It did work. It did work. You know, there's a little bit of sloppiness in it to start with. But then as you get into the rhythm of it, you can actually focus on the game rather than the mechanics of it. Or the mechanics of the... Um, of the video setup. Uh, of the tech that's in the way of the board game. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> or making the geographic lo- location transparent to you. Right. 
did you have to, did, is there some kind of app that you use or you just kind of wing it with like Google Meet and Zoom and stuff? I think on that one, I used Google Zoom from multiple devices mm-hmm. and, it, and it worked Zoom. out. Google, yeah. uh-huh. I'm sorry, Google, yeah. Google Hangout. Google Hangout, okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, why, why board games? You know, it's a, it's a great question. There's probably more than one answer for me. But I think for a lot of people, because there's been a renaissance of board games over the last five to eight years, um, part of it is a rejection of we each spend our days staring at screens. Uh, Even in our personal lives, we stare at screens. And so I think board games have had a resurgence because it is overtly social um, and very often, not always, because there are are games that do have app-assisted experiences and stuff like that, but... I think it's partly because it's a rejection of or kind of a call to be even more social. Um, I think there's also just the cost and risk of putting out a board game has come down considerably, like color reproduction, 3D printing, all the things that require and used to be so expensive to prototype a game have come down. So you have seen just an uptick in people releasing games. Because there's less less risk. There's Kickstarter has also fanned the flames of people coming up with really inventive play mechanics. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of money. In fact, I was watching a report over the break where game retailers, and this may be UCAN specific, but have had the highest revenue record last year that they have his, uh, in in history. Um, that folks are buying board games in a in a big way. And the games are just better. I think people are playing because it's long, long gone are the days of just like Monopoly. Like there's so many. Is that not great... a good game? Uh, most folks these days would argue that it is not a great game as compared to like what is also also out there. There's so many great so... play mechanics, settings, durations of play. Like if you want a game that plays in 10 minutes, you can have that. If you want a game, like I played one over the break that happens to take between 8 and 12 hours, you can play <laughs> a game that's like super involved with that. Yeah. So you have hockey, which I'm not going to talk much about because I know nothing about it, because you play hockey. And so your gear is really important because without that, you don't get to play. That's right. Yeah. And board games, because it's like a collection you get to share with people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, um, for sure, uh, my partner, Lori, and I, we love to play board games. Um, it's a way to kind of just unplug from the rest of like a work day. And um yeah, I think it's also like they are beautiful. There are these fidgety, beautiful, fun things that um, um, that are just a little bit different than all the other entertainment that we consume. You know, Maggie and I about oh a month ago or so we're having a. I wouldn't say a spat. Maybe we we're both hungry. We just weren't. We're bumping each other the wrong way. Some kind of thing was uncomfortable, and one of us suggested playing a game, and we just do like a gin rummy or something, a card game. And a minute and a half into the card game, we were both in a better mood and having a good time. And I don't know what that's about. I don't know why it is that it's like the prefrontal cortex is getting in the way of us having fun. And so you entertain it with a game that has some complexity and all of a sudden your emotional state's fine and everything's good. (laughs) So is that what it is? Why, why are they so useful for, to make that social encounter? Well, there's a lot of theory for sure around uh, the magic circle and some of these old theories that kind of predate games where when you decide to play a game, and this can speak to sports and a bunch of other things, where there's like a tacit agreement for everybody who's playing the game that you all agree to sort of abide by the same rules. Um, and that when you enter this, this yeah, again, conceptual magical circle, you're sort of giving yourself to that, that moment that state of play, you're inviting each other to kind of engage in this, this thing. And so, um, yeah, you know, I think there's also something to, I guess for most of us, when we play board games for better, or for worse, you know, them from childhood. So maybe there's, there's multiple things that kind of just, you know, lowers the stress level a little bit, opens a part of your brain that allows you to kind of play and have a little bit of fun. Or distracts you to think about your strategy for how, how you're going to try to uh, win or perform well in this thing. So it makes sense to me that it's a very disarming practice to engage in play. Do you get competitive? 
I am one of those players that, quite frankly, is not very competitive. Um, if it were hockey, that may be a different a different thing. There are parts of my <laughs> my brain that make me a little bit more competitive because I've been doing that for longer. But um, for games generally, a lot of the games that I like tend to be ones that have narrative. So there's a story to them, or there might be funny moments. I'm more interested in playing well of my own accord into my satisfaction. But I, I think I care more about the hang. I care more that folks have a good time and that the game is an appropriate game that folks of that particular configuration of people are going to do um, or enjoy uh, more so than, than winning. And I think winning can sometimes, unless it's a, uh, Oh, and there's also a range of co-op games where you are working together as a group to accomplish something, which are, is another style of game that I really enjoy too. Meaning everybody's together on the same team against some talent challenge. Yep. Wow, not just like two teams against each other. Right. Okay, but you were saying winning. What about winning? Like, Winning can ruin a good time for sure, right? I think there are, are certain people that if you are competitive and you have a competitive spirit, which a lot of people do and they know that they, and they have a good sense of humor about themselves about it, and you get a couple of those people being very competitive and having a laugh about being competitive and, and squeaking out a win can be a really good time. But if you have a mismatch of folks, you know, it's in a way, I don't know, um, I'm not a musician, but people talk about like playing music with other people. Sometimes there's a camaraderie and chemistry that you might have with other musicians. So the only time, I guess, with uh, board games where you might have personalities that cross strip one another, you know, someone who's really competitive over something that people are really going for a shared experience uh, can, can result in that time. So. I generally just try to play well and see, you know, winning. If you do well, if you play well, then winning take care of itself most of the time. I, I recently had an experience. We were on vacation, I think, with the kids, and they all wanted to play a game. And I played the game, and I won, and I felt bad. And they wanted to play again the next night, and I was like, I don't want to play because when I win, I feel bad. And then when I lose, I get angry and frustrated myself. Like there's this, there's something about me that I need with card games. It's not like that at all. With card games, it's totally fine. There's something, I don't know. I want to find that joy and just be able to let go and enjoy it. If I was your board game doctor, I would say, dear Lyle, um, I'm, I'm uh, prescribing you a co-op game. Uh, to play with your family. And there's plenty of great ones out there with a lot of great themes. In fact, I think you may know one as a result of one of your friends sort of designing one. There's a game called Horrified, which has all the classic universal monsters like the uh, Dracula and the mummy and the creature from the Black Lagoon and Frankenstein and Frankenstein's wife. And you as a team work together to... But that's that's actually a collaborative game? A co-op game. So you could, with your family, presumably... Uh, instead of having a competitive game, you as a family could save the town from all these horrible monsters that are overtaking it. Like you could save the town from the creature from the Black Lagoon and Frankenstein at the same time, which um, you really depend on each other in that game. It's a super lightweight game, but there's enough strategy where you do have to coordinate each other's turns. And um, you kind of have to think a couple turns ahead. And so it really pushes you to engage in teamwork and uh you know, planning together. And so I think that would, rather than put you in a, in a position where you don't want to play games like that, you know, this one, this is one of many, this, this, this style and setting may suit you. I don't know if it would suit the kids, your kids, but uh, yeah. Remove that whole sort of icky feeling of winning versus losing. Right. Yeah. Okay. I like that. I think I'll do that. I, I played role-playing games for so long and role-playing games, they don't have a win state, so they're not exactly a game in some technical senses. Um, but it always felt more like storytelling collaboratively together. And that was the goal was to have good time storytelling. So good. So some good co-op games is a good idea. And specifically, you talked about Horrified, which is a classic game with like uh, monster, uh, like classic monsters. But my friends actually made a version of this game, which was 1980s monsters. And that was Lance McVeigh and Emerson Murray. And it's not, it's a fun project, but taking that same board style, but having new monsters in it. Yeah. 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 Which I, I think cool. is, which is genius. And I think speaks to a lot of what's happening in board games right now. 
it's true of mobile games, a bunch of stuff. There's a wonderful indie game scene throughout the country. You know, the town that I used to live in before LA, Boston had a great indie game community. And I think because intellectual properties can be hard to acquire because of the cost and stuff like that, shouldn't ever stop you from being able to have a game that you can reskin with IPs that you love to make it more engaging. And I think that's what's pretty cool about the indie game scene in general or just game development in general these days where people are very much in the way, I don't know, like I guess in a hip hop analogy where people would take records that they happen to have and kind of mix them in the way that they want. People are doing that with with board games. And so I think, um, yeah, yeah, good on your friends to crack out the, the 80s uh, super super villains and uh, put them put them in a game. That's great. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it. it's it's about the reproduction cost being so cheap. You can you can print at your house. You can, even three dimensional things you can print. And really, the copyright co- concerns are about profiting from copyright infringement. Right? There's no law that you can't draw Mickey Mouse in your home as much as you want. Right? You just can't sell that because it's a copyrighted thing. So in this world where it's really in, inexpensive or easy to mass produce things that actually have intellectual property of somebody else it's fine as long as you're doing it for fun which is pretty cool yeah in fact there are a couple of forums where what they call that is print and play where you don't sell it but you could say hey here are a bunch of files that you can print yourself at home because people can print you know of course 2d artifacts or they can go to a print shop and print something out or increasingly you can print 3d models of things you can very quickly print may not be the prettiest game on the planet, but it may be very entertaining because it speaks to like the, the characters you want to emulate from any film or genre or whatever you want to do. Yeah, printing, print and play games are a way that people are kind of sharing experiences. Do you mind if we get a little personal? Go for it. So we work together. You're a designer. I'm an engineer. And I actually lots of times am implementing the stuff that you've designed or collaboratively worked on. It's not like a one-way street in any way. You're very collaborative. And one of the traits I've noticed that you have is you're very thoughtful in the way you communicate with people to acknowledge what the person's saying and thinking, to bring up a new idea. The, the thing that I'm impressed about, that you're great to collaborate with, but one of the things I'm really impressed with is that you seem to always be wanting to make sure there's clarity and you do that through a very deliberate way of readdressing what's been said with conclusions is when like you're running a meeting and stuff. And I'm just curious if that is innately part of who you are, you've built that up because of gameplay or you had a bad experience at one point and said, Oh, I know how I can fix this. What is it? It's a, it's a great question. Uh, And sometimes I think it may be a a fault of mine as well, where uh, some things don't need to be readdressed, but I think part of it comes from having taught, uh, middle school kids. Uh, after I graduated college, I moved to Japan for a couple of years and taught English as a as a job while also doing uh, camera work after hours in Tokyo. And I don't know, there may be part of the way that I speak or try to reprise things that is for the purposes of retention. Or um, and a lot of the work that we do, depending on the audience, there might be room to make sure that people feel invited to contribute. And so by restating things or kind of opening the door to be like, hey, this is how I think I've understood what you've said. Here's where we'll go from from there. I guess I'd try to do that, maybe to the point of annoyance for, for some people who just kind of want to make progress more quickly. Have you gotten feedback? Yeah, certainly. I'm also a kid that was kind of raised to Yankee parents in the Southeast. So being anywhere near the South, we tend to be a little bit drawn out in our speech. And so I've always tried to... Uh, keep things a little bit tight. I don't always succeed. In fact, some might assert that I don't succeed most days. So, <laughs> But I think it's probably a combination of those things. Maybe that's why I admire it so much, because I have a tendency, surprise, surprise, to speak a little too quickly and say things. Sometimes I'm repetitive at some way, but it's not in a clarity way. It's more like I'm rambling. You seem to be much more clear in your you know, stating what's been said or trying to draw a conclusion. I'll do a, a bit of repetitiveness, but it's not about building a narrative that seems cohesive. It's more about I say something and I'm trying to be more convincing, but I'm also speak too quickly sometimes. So I lose people in that regard. And then I have to repeat myself because it wasn't clear. So maybe that's why I appreciate 
the cadence you provide, it, it allows us to make sure we're all on track, which is so much about communication is problematic is when we're not synced up with things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I would say part of it, and this is worth a laugh, I think is like when you get into team dynamics, particularly like, I guess, agile teams where you have designers and PMs and developers, of course, developers are the most efficient in their speech. They're like, to the point, get to the thing. I just want to kind of get going on the, on the thing. And of course, you've got uh, designers and folks who kind of want to uh, examine, make it, you know, the best decision possible, having had all the inputs. And um, yeah, I mean, we all have different modes and different gears for when when a pattern of communication is appropriate. Like, hey, we need to make a decision. This is a lightning round. We just kind of hammer through it. And which, you know, I think you participate in that sort of that gear shifting all the time. There are times where you pull up and you know it's about like the conversation. And there are times where it's decision mode. And I think by virtue of the, the way that we spend the hours in our, in our day, our default gear for you, default gear, of course, is like hammering out code. So um, for you, maybe the, the pattern of speech is, is sort of a reflection of like, oh, I just spent the last hour hammering away at code. So you're so I don't I don't take it as a character flaw. I just think it's like sometimes it's hard, particularly at Netflix or other work environments, to context switch. I literally just had my eyes on code for the last hour, and then um, and now I'm in a meeting with human beings. Like, of course, your the way that you speak is going to be impacted by that, right? Same for us on the design side. We may have just been designing for an hour, and then you come into a meeting. Well, pattern of speech is going to match up. You must have had a pretty interesting flow to go from college to teaching middle school English in Tokyo to doing cam work on the side to now being a, a user interface designer at Netflix. How did you step from Tokyo to designing uh, software products? <laughs> yeah, so in school, I double majored in uh, primary major, at least in my mind, was radio, television, film. I wanted to study film. I knew I wanted to study film. I consider myself lucky knowing exactly what I wanted to do sophomore year of school. And I also had an interest in uh, Japan, uh, Japanese history, language. Um, it's kind of a long, long story, but basically my grandfather was killed in World War II. Uh, he was a fighter pilot. I grew up as a kid who was like, hey, you're a lot like your grandfather. You look like your grandfather, blah, 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 blah. And as a kid, I didn't really understand, like, what do you mean he was killed in the war? And so I always had this lingering interest around Japan. And so what that translates to is, like, in, in college, I wound up studying a lot about um, Japanese everything. And then, long story made short, an advisor was like, hey, you just need three more credits and you'll, you know, you'll be able to double major in Asian studies. And so coming out of college, what I wanted to do was work tax-free to save money to go to, to film school. And so one way to do that was through a program called JET. JET is the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program where uh, the Japanese government puts a high premium on second language acquisition for kids in Japan. And so at that time, I think there were 6,000 participants from 40 different countries in that program to teach not just English, but languages to Japanese students of all ages. And it just happened to be my gig wound up being just north of Tokyo for middle school. And um, what I was trying to do is earn money for graduate school. And at the same time, um, I was already trying to gig as a cameraman at that time and was able to pick up work, uh, both doing post work and camera work um, there. So I was living like this wonderful dual life, early 20s, the whole thing. And so um, when I returned from Japan, I knew... But I wanted to be in post production, so I pretty much was saving up money to take a bunch of, of classes in software editing and, and even business because I knew that you know a freelance edit, editor life you were going to have to figure out how to balance your bills and balance your checkbook, blah 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 blah. So long story made short, I worked for uh, quite a long time working as an editor, uh, both offline and online, in doing colorist work, and got burnt out on it. Uh, I got burnt out working on um, what I was doing. Although I loved the work, I loved the people I worked with. I just kind of got burnt out on working on, on, on shows I didn't really care about or, or that sort of thing. Um, and But by that point, I'd been like a customer advisory for a company called Avid that made the software that I was working on to do my job. 
And so I'd been working as a doing this customer advisory thing for about five years. And then some day someone whispered in my ear and like, hey, have you ever considered coming to work for us and actually building the tools that you're, you know, you, you have a lot to say about our tools. Can you, <laughs> maybe you can help us, you know, um, uh, you know, build them a little bit. So I kind of left the world of post-reduction uh, for a different take on post-reduction. It was like getting on the other side of the tools and, and working in, in design. So I went through a bunch of uh, boot camps and worked at Avid for quite a long time um, doing design work. Uh, not only creative tooling, but connecting creative tooling to emerging cloud infrastructure and remote workflows. That sounds so familiar to what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. At some point, um, you know, Netflix reached out and... Um, yeah, the rest is, I guess, history, I suppose. Ian, what's what's the biggest challenge in making software work for people? Oof. I imagine it has to do a lot with human beings are not created the same way. or We definitely have different preferences. We have different ways of thinking of things. And so I think when you look at designing products, you have to sort of accommodate a lot of different perspectives and preferences and then figure out the ones that are going to be able to, you know, accommodate the largest group of users to kind of get started with and then refine from there. I think what's interesting about the work that we do is that by virtue of the fact that, I don't know, was it 2007 when the iPhone came out, that mobile technology has really driven up and, and basically gesture-based input and the way that we consume technology has become more personalized over the last decade and change. And I think there's an expectation that's been raised about how personalized and how comfortable and intuitive things can feel for people, particularly things that mm-hmm. you know pe- people carry a computer in their pocket every day. And so I think there's so many different waves of language that we use to sort of relay uh, ideas to one another, and I think a lot of software design is also like following following waves and trends of what people are consuming, and being able to kind of speak to that vocabulary, both visually and, and vocabulary in terms of experience, not just like text. But I mean, like the way that people in, engage with things, um, uh, so many different range of apps uh, on their phones or tablets or computers. Why do you like it? I mean, designing. For me, large part of why I like design is uh, it's almost like cracking a code. Is there's problem solving, and I think that's what's great about Netflix and the people attracted to Netflix is that I think we all come here as problem solvers. We all want to kind of figure out uh, figure out how to craft solutions. And for me, part of doing design work is so much about uh, research, understanding users uh, in a way that maybe, you know, it's not as, as well as they understand themselves, but being able to anticipate the things as if we could speak uh, for them. And if you get yourself from a research perspective in a position to kind of anticipate what they would say, that finally puts you in a position to go uh, build or design something that helps unlock and solve the, solve the puzzle, or at least a part of the puzzle. Design is also a commitment, I think, to constantly learning. You know, we talk a lot at Netflix about, I think it was Reed that said, you know, the best part about our culture is that we're a learning machine. And I think that sort of thing, if done well, radiates down to each of our teams where, you know, the more that we can have an engagement with uh, the folks that we're trying to serve, the easier it, it becomes. It's really about unlocking the puzzle. You know, problem solving is, is the thing I love yeah. most about design. Sounds like a game almost for you. A little bit, yeah. Are you good at it? No. Do you, do you have faith in yourself? Uh, I always, I think no matter what I've ever done in my life, I've never felt satisfied with my own work ever. I'm absolutely, as we all, or each of us are, we are our harshest critics. But I think in the same way I think about uh, the way that I play hockey, I can always be better. I can always be a better skater. I can always have a better shot. It's the same attitude I had around editing. It's like, oh, there was so much to learn. Like, there's always the next thing I can be great at um, or do better than I am doing today. Design is no different. In fact, I think 
what's fantastic about design is that uh, in many ways, there is no single right answer. Um, and so the way that you evaluate yourself is probably around, um, you know, technique and an improvement of technique over time. Um, because, you know, um, you know, perfect products in many ways don't exist, right? Because there's, <laughs> you can't accommodate for all of human preference in one product. I don't know, except maybe the wheel, but even, <laughs> I don't know. There's probably a lot of people that like their rims differently on their car than, than others, if you know what I mean. Yeah, we're still working on it. Yeah. I think, I think that's fascinating. I think you've got to come at it that it's a continual learning thing because it can in continual improving your technique because we talk about precious. We can't be precious about the software we make. It is completely ethereal, right? I mean, it'll exist for a period of time and people will use it. But it's not hardware, it's software, it changes the entire time, it's the definition of it. And so the idea that it would be a certain thing at any one moment is only that moment. How do you feel about continually working on stuff that's disposable? I mean, at least when you were editing, you know, you're still in front of a screen, you're still working on an image or temporal images, you're still doing the same kind of tools in the sense that you're moving things around and, you know, figuring out when cuts happen, drawing images but the end of that, you get a film or a commercial or a television thing that does stand by itself and is a thing that will probably persist, unfortunately, indefinitely as society exists. But with software, it's totally different. It ages and goes bad and dies like a living thing almost. How do you feel about not producing real things? Oh, yeah. This is a juicy topic. So I'll try to inherit two different assertions about this topic. Uh, so earlier in the call, we, we talked about how, at least for me, my attitude around technology is, is acknowledging the disposability of it. So you could sort of trash and personalize and put stickers all over my computer and phone. Or, you know, if I drop the stupid thing, then I'm not going to, it's not going to ruin my day that if I have a cracked screen, because ultimately it's going to get, you know, recycled or reused or reclaimed in some way. Um, with the products that we build, that is also true, right? Like um, technology changes underneath our feet all the time. The market changes all the time. Competitive products come out or something that leapfrogs what you may be working on happens a lot. It's certainly true of emerging cloud technologies and what we've done in the remote space. And, um, you know, in, in a sort of joking way, I, I guess the only thing that you can do is try to provide value consistently. And that's like a very much a marketing or a businessy way of saying it, but basically saying as much as we can put our users, our artists, our shows in a position to succeed consistently, um, regardless of what is happening in technology at the time, or at least being there for them, it's sort of, if you go doing the work with that in your heart, I mean, it won't mean success all the time, but at least... I think it's a contributor to, to success because you're less precious about the thing that you made and more precious about the relationship. You're more precious about the success uh, for the show. And you'd be like, hey, this is what we built is wrong for them. Get rid of it. Let's start again. That's the attitude that you have to be ready to have. On the second point, I would say in terms of technology, there are things that technology can be made obsolete, but can persist in its beauty, right? Like when we think about, I'll give you a really good example. So my favorite camera manufacturer in the world is Ari out of Germany. Everybody knows Ari, right? Because this is like the Ari Alexa is, is responsible for a lot of the, the films and shows that we see. Um, they've been doing it a very long time. But an Ari camera from, let's say, the mid-2000s, and I'm trying to think of a particular model, but... There's certainly models of RE cameras that are uh, have the body that was industrially made. There's like industrial design to make a case in the body of the RE camera that those things are built like tanks. You could drop them and they're not going to break. They're going to come back full more. And then you combine that with the fact that there's in that era in the mid 2000s, you had so many electronics shoved in the side of this beautiful industrial shell with circuitry in there to count film and uh, count film frames. Beautiful with all the audio hookups, all the video taps so that people can see Video Village. And then on top of that, so you've got uh, electrical sort of design or, or makeup, you've got industrial design. And the most beautiful thing about it, again, being a romantic like me, 
shooting film is that, of course, what's cycling around inside that RE shell is chemistry. There's film print that is being shot and exposed. And so you have these three disciplines kind of jammed into one camera. Now, you know, shooting film today is kind of reserved for like Christopher Nolan and, and few people that can afford and have the <laughs> have to shoot it, or it might be reserved for special projects um, more often than not, which is sad in a way. But at the same time, I can look back and if there's anything from filmmaking ever that you would ask me what I would be precious of love to have is an old RE camera that may not be shooting any film because it's far too expensive to, to shoot it. To me, the beauty of what they were able to accomplish at that time, as obsolete as it is, is such a beautiful expression of three disciplines being jammed into one object to go tell stories. Uh, so I think there's a part of technology that, and, and design that can remain beautiful and to your point, maybe persist over time, even, yeah. even, even in its obsolescence. I agree. Uh, and I, I don't think that's software most of the time. Uh, that's true. Yeah, I guess I'll have to come up with a software equivalent of like, yeah. I mean, I, there's a lot of whole old Flash games that I think are amazing. <laughs> yeah, you can still run them. <laughs> <laughs> or old games, yeah. you know, from platforms or, you know, platform. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll, say, I, I'll just say games and leave it. <laughs> I used to work in education and at, at UCSC, Digital Arts New Media Program. I helped uh, run the tech on it. And one of the things that I'd run into is this idea that we'd had a graduate student do their thesis work in some software platform. And traditionally you'd take a thesis and you'd send it to the library, but these theses are like an interactive narrative or you name it, something that is an inactive experience. And there isn't a way to archive that. And in fact, whatever you do, it's going to kind of degrade an age, unlike a sculpture or a painting or some more traditional forms, even forms like music where, yeah, the performance is gone. Those performers are gone and maybe you only have their sheet music, but at least there is a pretty good record of the intent in the notations of that. Yeah. And that just doesn't have, it doesn't exist in, in some technical spaces. Mm. Um, and that's of course, projects that are designed specifically for the experience for the person, kind of like entertainment it's not the practical side of things. And I would say that people have a love of Lotus Notes or like there, there is definitely passion around software yeah. because people used it for so long and have a, a feeling about it. Well, I, I think that's certainly true of creative software. I think if you earn your paycheck, as I did for a period of time in my life, for the tools and your virtuosity with a creative tool. Um, like Avid. Or, you know, it could be music, it could be anything. There are people that even today, for some people, you could build a small business on, on that software. There's a love and affection for even, this sounds ridiculous, but I know folks who often sort of post to social media old install discs or original documentation for stuff because there's a moment in your life where you were using that thing every day. And I don't know if it's love because, you know, some of those experiences may have been miserable, but by God, you earned a paycheck on that. You know, it, it, it's nostalgia. Right. Right. Like ja jazz drives or zip drives. It's like nobody wants to use that stuff yes. now, but there's a tactility to them. Like in the same way that I've joked with other people, of course, like aliens from outer space or even children of today uh, would be like, wait a minute, you stored things on something that was mechanical, like as, as compared to like flashlights, like, wait a minute, you had something that spinned inside, like that was never going to work. <laughs> like, but yet it did, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think there is room for that affection for what you were able to accomplish with those tools as limited as they were at that time. You alluded to when I asked you if you were a good designer, um, you, you kind of gave the humble answer, but, or the truthful of how you think about yourself answer. Do you ever have times when you're doubting yourself? Oh, I personally, yeah. before, before you answer that, I want to say very clearly, I work with you. I absolutely love working with you. I love getting new designs from you. I love when I think of something about the design and you contemplate it. And then I have an idea what might make it better. And I suggest that to you. And then you come back to me with that incorporated and better than that. It's like, Oh yeah, that's what I want. Like, like So I, I absolutely, I think you're amazing at what you do. And so with that, 
being said, what's wrong with you? Why don't you think you're good? <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Well, thank you for the compliments. And uh, of course, I like adore working with you and, and our crew as well. So uh, I'm going to say two things. So the very practice of building a product and uh, building anything, filmmaking is another good analog for this. That's why I think it's so fun to work on software for people who make films for a living. Yeah, is that there is no one person and, and people have said like Hitchcock, you know, is a good example of he's one of those folks who could have done it all. Like he storyboarded, he shot, he wrote, he, or in my mind, like John Carpenter wrote his own scores, shot his own stuff, you know? Um, but those examples aside, and I even think those folks, there's, uh, of course, there's, um, plenty of examples. Um, not just men, women, every, everybody. There's no one who I would guess could say they could do it alone. And I think that's most, it's certainly true of building a product because um, I don't code for a living. A recent example for us is that you and I didn't write an API from another company. <laughs> There's a part of like what's possible, what's feasible, what fits a, a moment a schedule. There's so many different balancing acts that we have to do in order to kind of build something worthwhile that you do have to make compromises. And so for me, the geek of what we do is um, you have to pull input from everybody in order to kind of get folks aligned. But there's also the the feasibility and the practicality and the timing of it. You're not going to be able to do that by mandate. You got to do it mm -hmm. with input from a lot of people. So I think that's fundamental to the design. And I think it's also fundamental to the, just the art of building or creating anything that's true yeah. true of filmmaking for sure for sure for sure it's like yeah you might have the greatest film uh, script in your mind but do you have money for it do you have actors for it how long are those actors available you know i mean it's, it's just yeah. it's funny it's it kind of reminds me of the just the general the tech tree i mean you think of most art forms or creative endeavors in any way they're mostly based on other technology the person doesn't do i i remember talking with somebody that uh, my brother-in-law at one point is an oboist and oboists make their own reeds and you kind of have to because they have to be a certain shape and you have to have, always be working on them. And I was like, oh, cool. So you actually make your instrument. He's like, no, I make the reeds. I can't make the instrument. Like it, the stack is always higher than the person's endeavor. Right. And so it's, it's interesting that that experience of just making a software solution for the animation space, which, which we're, we're, what we're working on right now is kind of a microcosm of it's not really possible to live in a house unless you have a whole society that helps you build the house right like it's it's similar in that way so. yeah or source the materials for that house right yeah it's not even in some cases about the the trade or the technique to build it it's like where's your raw material from yeah yeah and films are classically that they are collaborative experiences i know that you've named a couple of people and there's definitely people that can make their own films and that's that's a great example of that but the majority of films are this collaboration of hundreds of people and you can tell by just staying at the credits all those people were important <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, software is like that. So you think of, so you were going with that, with this idea of me poking at you about not feeling like you're good or something. Like what, what, <laughs> what is it about that? How do you, why do you go that direction? Yeah. Answer? Yeah. What's wrong with me? I think is the way you phrase the question, which is how I phrase it, yeah. <laughs> friendly. Uh, I suppose, um, I suppose what's wrong with me is that I guess I'm a human being. <laughs> um, for me personally, it's a balancing act of I want to be good at whatever I choose to do in life. Um, I want to be good. And I, I think part of being good has to do with being a lifelong student. You have to commit yourself to learning all the time, which can be frustrating to never feel like you have the answer. And that's just part of having kind of a, that growth mentality, I think. But, but Ian, you have great answers all the time. Like, are, do you really think that you're not doing a good job? I mean, you intellectually, you know that you're doing a good job, right? Um, at least in my mind, what I usually come up with is like, it's passable. Could be better. Could be. <laughs> Man, that's hard. I am. I mean, I get that. Fairly, sure, I get that. Yeah, I am fairly, fairly brutal on myself, and I think it's been that way. You know, I started playing sports when I was five and was on a team at five. I played soccer competitively growing up and it might have to do with what I'm comfortable with too. Like from my whole growing up, I always had 
I played on multiple teams. So I had many coaches of many different accents and types and attitudes and uh, temperaments yelling at me all the time. So I'm accustomed, I think, <laughs> to being sort of assaulted with like, that could be better and this could be better. Of course, like the constantly chasing, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with always aspiring to be, to be better. But the backlash of that is absolutely you really have to go easy on yourself when you make a mistake. I was often a kid that was really critical of myself and would lambast myself again and again and again for having made a mistake rather than just like getting over it and solving the problem. Like, okay, what next? There's a resilience that I think each of us has to kind of develop over time in how comfortable we are in our, in our skin. In the late nineties, I was living in LA and I got my first job as a software person a webmaster. That's what we, we called developers of websites back then. The webmaster was the person that could understand the entire thing and design the system. So I used Photoshop and Illustrator. Yes, those existed then. And I built out designs and I coded those in HTML by hand and not using Dreamweaver and doing it by, you know, by code and then wrote some scripts to allow me to inject data into it. This was for a telco in Los Angeles. And I remember coming up with designs that I was happy with. And at that time, you know, I grew up in an artistic family. My mother's a painter. My father's a photographer, both theater people. So for me, like doing art, and I'd done a lot of poster design. I'd had some design experiences and I was always very supported by my family to be creative. So there was nothing like you can't do that, like totally true and all that stuff. So I'd stepped into this professional space and I was in a meeting at one point and I, we were talking about the color blue and there was like 15 people in the room. And I had made the decision on the color blue. And to the life of me, I have no idea why we were talking about blue. But I just remember thinking, I never want to do this again. I never want to be in a space where everybody thinks they know what's going on. Because it's like, sure, a different blue is fine. Who Like, I just made a decision. And now it's kind of like, let's just do it a different way. And it felt, I felt so drained from that, that I was like, I don't want to design anymore. And I kind of leaned back into the tech side and I stepped away from design. Because with this, with software, most people can't do it. So there's a bit of like, don't worry about it. I got it. You know, you don't have yeah. to be, nobody's over your shoulder, really. Now, of course, over time, you realize there's a whole culture of people that are judging. In fact, the way we develop software is collaborative in the sense that I submit ideas. My colleagues look at them. They judge me. They give me feedback. I get better over time. You know, that totally exists. But it's much more structural and there's a reason for it. I feel like conceptually design, user interface design, it's very hard to say what's right or what's not. I don't know how you rely on that skill. You're good at it. I don't know how you do it. And does it feel like you're taking abuse all the time when people go, shit, this blue should really be darker? <laughs> um, <laughs> the short answer is yes. I feel like I'm abused constantly. Uh, <laughs> Darn it. I'm sorry. <laughs> totally comfortable with it. And, and joking aside, I think part of maybe what prepared me for getting into design was having edited for a living. When you work as an editor for a living, every one of us is a natural born storyteller. We all can relate to the story. There's always a beginning, middle, and end. there's always the finesse of performance. There's always all these things that everyone's a critic as well. They should be because we, we love the, the stories that we tell. We love to tell them. Well, having been an editor, you take feedback constantly. Some of it's good, some of it's positive. Of course, like, uh, hey, this, this really works and here's why. And the, the thing about it is there are so many different ways to tell a story. And I, I, would, I would assert there are many different ways to create a software experience. They're just different. Where they succeed and where they fail has a different profile than a different way of having built the same thing. And trade-offs between, yeah. Yeah, trade-offs, the whole thing. So the art of being... I suppose a good editor, at least in my estimation, was being able to listen. You can't always satisfy every single want or need, and, and you shouldn't try because you'll you'll die of, <laughs> of sheer madness, right? But I think part of it is looking for those trend lines and also looking for symptoms uh, in editing. It's like, oh, you know, I feel like this this scene is not paying off or it's not working, and it doesn't work not because the scene isn't cut well or isn't doing its job, but two scenes earlier or three scenes earlier, the emotional setup for the payoff of what's happening in the scene isn't set up right. 
So you may have to look upstream. And uh, part of what's fun about editing, and I would also say software design is also, again, that evaluation, that 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 mystery of what unlocks the most sort of like ah moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that abuse that comes is is a welcome abuse because it's all meant in, in a positive light. Of course, there's better feedback and more constructive feedback um, that is more descriptive. And I think sometimes as what we do as designers is try to tease that out from users who may not have yet the language to sort of say why it doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have these diagnostic questions to sort of tease it out of them to get the, a clearer sense of what's not, not working. Um, I joke that abuse is natural. In fact, I will, I will tell and, and joke with you in, in grooming stuff. I think there was time um, recently where we were like, hey, are you okay with me abusing, abusing you or the design? Like, hell yeah, this is, in my mind, like what, what grooming is. Like when you, when you are engaging as a team, particularly early in the schedule, to say like, here's the problem statement. We have a clear problem statement. How do we provide a solution? Everybody go ideate as much as possible. What can we all generate as a group as the ideas that we can combine to sort of build something that actually works? There are no bad ideas at certain phase. And of course, we have to winnow that down into like, okay, this is the thing that we're going to build. But the iterative process of design, of course, requires that we, I don't want to say we all abuse each other, but that input should be open and available, right? Like everybody should be able to kind of toss in their ideas and then you know, see see which ones rise to the surface, or we can combine a couple to make the best solution. That's all part of the design process. It's totally natural. <laughs> Abuse welcome. I'll get a t-shirt. That says that. Do you have any creative endeavors where people aren't, you're not doing it as collaboratively, but you're going to decide what is going to happen for yourself? Yeah, I think that might be, you know, I've been flirting around with game prototyping when I was living in Boston and also here in L.A., I usually get involved with um, game maker type of uh, circles where you prototype people's games and the various states of design. Board games? Board games, yeah. Uh, board games for sure. Although in, in Boston, it was the community sort of went into mobile gaming and a bunch of stuff. So um, uh, all of it was, was fair game. You're designing a product to serve a function and to help someone do something as more, more or less a tool versus you are trying to create uh, an entertaining experience. I think what's been healthy for me is like crossing those streams a little bit. How can we bring delight in something that's utilitarian and how can we make sure that um, the function of something doesn't get lost in a delightful game experience? Um, mm-hmm. That's been good. I guess this is a roundabout way of saying like um, in those spaces, I think I have a little bit more freedom, particularly if it's not my project, I can sort of design with folks without feeling that anything's at stake in a way. Right, because yeah. it's not my project. Yeah. I can give input. The other other place where it's, it's more like play in that space. Yeah, and then for me, hockey is a good release where the way that I play, I'm not on contract. I don't play in a <laughs> in a paid league or anything like that. So I I can play as poorly or as uh, terribly or in any style that I want. And the worst result is I will still drink beer after having done. <laughs> The, the uh, league you play in and stuff that people you see uh, on other teams, you all party together and hang out together, or is it more more uh, confrontational than that? Uh, you know, I'm kind of a transplant to LA, and because of the pandemic, I haven't really gotten in that rhythm of seeing a lot of usual suspects. I'm not currently in a league. I'm trying to get into a league, but it's it's difficult here in LA. Whereas in Boston or other, other places where I've played, more often than not, like I have found my tribe and it doesn't really abide by team lines. It's like, Hey, yeah. you like to play hockey as much as I do. We're going to be fast friends. <laughs> you know, it's usually about that. It's so funny. Ian, I know you're a hockey player because one time you showed up for work with your hand all broken. I'm like, what's happening? You're like, <laughs> oh, hockey. You know? And until that moment, I'd never thought of you as a sports person I'd never, but then again, I'd also never thought of you as someone that had anything but a torso because we've known each other for over a year. We work with each other almost every day and we've never been in the same room together. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It is. It is weird. Isn't it? I have seen some of the members of, you know, our team or those who have joined during the pandemic, but it is, it is, it is criminal, but I don't feel cheated. No, (laughs) I'm glad to, glad to know you. I've seen, I've seen pictures where you have legs, so 
I know that I, I do. I have walked around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ian, thank you for doing this um, thing with me. Was this what you expected? I I always expect a good conversation with you. Whether or not it's recorded is <laughs> it's just a formality. So, yeah. But it's still good that I told you I was going to record, right? Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. I didn't um, tell you anything about what I'm doing, really. Um, I just kind of kept it blank. But um, this was much more cash than most of the conversations. Most of the conversations have gotten very... I had a friend that talked about his, his dad dying a couple days before. My sister and I healed a whole bunch of history between us. We talked about perception. We talked about self-doubt. So I was kind of poking at that a bit, but you seem pretty good. Would you say that you present well or are you pretty good? Are you generally a pretty happy person? I think like any of us during the pandemic, there are a lot of different things that come and ebb and flow. Um, I don't know that I'm always, always happy. I think I, in, in a strange way, I'm more concerned if other folks are happy more so than myself, <laughs> which isn't, isn't uh, always the healthiest policy, I suppose. But yeah, I think, you know, there, there are days that are, that are tough because a um, good example is, you know, I'm currently not uh, able to play hockey because right now I'm being a little bit cautious around, you know, COVID outbreaks and being in a locker room with other mm-hmm. people. So, you know, can get a little cagey if I'm not playing or not being able to kind of get out there, which can sort of erode your defenses for confronting things like imposter syndrome or those other things. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really like having gas in the tank. You know, if other things are clicking in my life, you can sort of shrug those things off. But in a bad week where, you know, it can be tough to see family because you can't travel or you can't do them things that you would normally do because of, you know, trying to be safe or whatever, you know, uh, you can get hit one week with tough feelings or I let myself sort of have bad internal talk just because there isn't anything else to kind of buoy me up. So what do you do when that happens, when you notice it's happening? Um, definitely try to get a little bit of perspective. I think it's easy for us to, and I'm one of those folks who is a little bit more introverted. So I think my Achilles heel tends to be a bit of isolating. And if I isolate and I don't talk to other folks or at least kind of get off my chest, like, yeah, I'm feeling this kind of way, you know, usually if you allow other people to kind of get into your life, they can bring you back up or distract you for a while or kind of rebuild the, those defenses a little bit. Um, it's like people are important. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's taken me my lifetime, I think, to uh, not that people aren't important, but in order for my survival, like I have letting people in, letting you know, um, thankfully I have some good friends in the LA area and part of coming out this way has helped where there's a good friend of mine who's known me forever since we both worked in Japan together. We've been good friends where uh, when I'm feeling garbage, doesn't matter. It could be at midnight. I can call him up, go over to his house. Not to say this has happened, but, you know, when the, when the chips are down, as they say, I can just sort of let it loose with uh, my friend and um He's disconnected away from my work and my stuff to just really think about like, well, is it like this or like this? And it usually helps me find a little bit of balance. But if you if you're an introvert, which again for me in my life, part of the things I've had to learn is uh to not isolate in those moments. You know, when I've had deaths in the family or really dark, dark things, you know, friends pass away, stuff like that. I made the mistake of sort of isolating off and I've done it enough where I finally learned like, no, that's, that's not what you do. It's like the opposite of what you need to do. So being able to kind of get past it. Yeah. It makes sense from an instinct perspective because you're hurt and other people can hurt. So get away from people, be safe. And then you're missing what you actually need, which is the support of other people. Yeah. It's, I can see it's kind of a tricky one. Yeah. Particularly if you take the foolish mindset that, you know, you're spilling yourself on other people. Nobody wants that. Um, it takes a couple of good friends to be like, are you, are you kidding me? Like that wasn't any sort of burden for you to kind of open up is actually tells us that we're good friends. Yeah. It feels good. If you don't disclose, right. Like yeah. people that care actually, uh, are, are willing to kind of shoulder that with you. E- even enjoy shouldering that with. Somebody. Yeah. 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 Feel connected and useful and helpful. And, <laughs> yeah. 
it, friends of mine that have a good sense of humor might be like, yeah, yeah, you made me feel better about my life because it's not near as bad as yours. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which, you know, make, making me laugh, so uh, makes it all yeah. better. It's funny how like a little bit of razzing like that is cathartic in some ways. <laughs> it's true. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, yeah, uh, wholeheartedly. I wish you the best with whatever you are building or creating. Um, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but it seems like a great idea and it's going to be wonderful. Well, truth be told, I kind of ran out of time today. Um, it was getting up to the end of the day, and the interviews that I'd planned didn't happen. And so at the last minute, I said, hey, Ian. I mean, I told him a while before, but he was gracious enough to just step in and do a quick interview at the very end of a long day. So thank you so much, Ian. And it was an interesting conversation. Hey, I just realized a lot of people are listening to this podcast without understanding they're a podcast. It is a podcast. So if you've got a podcast player, if you use Apple Music or if you use Overcast or if you use Spotify, go ahead and subscribe to the show. You can find it by searching any place you subscribe to podcasts. Search for Lunch with Lyle. I'm sure it'll show up. If not, just go to Troxel.com. You can find it from there. And remember... You can ask me questions or suggest people for the show by just participating on some social media. Or, if you'd like, email me. I'm Lyle at Troxel.com. Thank you so much and have a good day.